And as usual, I'm joined by Mr. William Dalton. How you doing, William? Uh, grand. You sounded like Derek Mooney just there. <laughs> I thought I'd spice up the intro for <laughs> the new the the view year. Did you, did you not enjoy it? Um. Yeah. I'm not sure. I thought you were a big Derek Mooney fan. Um. I I don't really have strong feelings about him one way or or the other. To to be perfectly honest. Hmm. Anywho, uh, we've been off the airwaves for two weeks. Two weeks or three. Um, sorry, it's been three weeks now because there was a two-week break. Three weeks we've been off the airwaves and our listeners are dying to hear what you think about everything that's been going on, huh? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I wanted to start by chatting about an issue which will, I think, be near and dear to the hearts of at least one of our listeners. Uh, and that is... You mean at least one of our listeners? That implies we've more than one listener, will you? Well, I just know that this one specific listener will definitely be animated about this topic and who it is will become clear Go on. when I tell you that a Donegal fishing boat oh, here we go. was blocked from entering the territorial waters around Rockall, it was reported this week, uh, by a Scottish patrol vessel. Now Rockall, people may recall, uh, no pun intended. Yeah, I was about to say, is Rockall... Uh, well, it's a rock off the coast of Donegal, which well, way well, off the coast of Donegal. yeah, it's in the middle of the North Atlantic. Yeah, that, it's not really particularly near any country. Well, but lots of people try to take ownership. Lots of countries try to take ownership of it because they want the the, uh, the surrounding fishing waters are very valuable. There's also potentially oil reserves, natural gas, and minerals. So to, just to give you a very brief history, it was annexed by Britain in 1955. 19- Wouldn't be like them, huh? Uh, indeed, <laughs> in 1972. Yeah, it was sort of the last nineteen fifty five. Last really, raw for the yeah, of the empire. Yeah, the last. Well, it's about to get a real. Anyway, I'll let you. Well, nineteen seventy two, uh, it was declared part of Scottish heritage. Then in nineteen eighty two, there was this UN convention on um, the seabed, which declared that if a rock is uninhabitable, then no state can claim an exclusive rights to the uh, seabed around it. So, unfortunately so, for the Brits, uh, the title of the rock kind of gives it away. Yeah, and then there was this guy in the 80s who tried to show that it was um, habitable by tying himself to it for 40 days. Christ almighty. Um, he was British. But as a result of that um, UN convention, Britain still claims sovereignty over it, but Ireland doesn't recognise that. And Iceland and Denmark also have competing claims to the surrounding seabed because it's very valuable fishing waters. Um, so, but... Uh, the Irish position was that um, it was part of EU waters which were shared under the common fisheries policy until until obviously Brexit so oh. on January 1st this Scottish vessel shows up uh, in around Rockall and it would appear that uh, when it comes to Rockall at the moment Britannia rules the waves yeah and I thought Scotland were a bit more uh, you know, I wonder are those kind of issues devolved because I would have thought you know the SNP wouldn't be you know, going mad for all the Brexit benefits. Well, evidently this particular issue is devolved. Um, and, yeah, it wasn't the British uh, Navy. It was a, a specifically yeah. a Scottish patrol. Well, yeah, uh, thankfully it hasn't come to that yet. But the Irish government, um, I believe the Department of Foreign Affairs are looking into this, so it'll be interesting to see how this story develops. But they, uh, there was an interview on, on the news with the fisherman involved, and he was very rightly pissed off about it. Perhaps we could get our listener on to chat about it, huh? Yeah, I, I'd love uh, for Irla um, or anyone else to get in touch uh, on that. On that point, uh, we'd love to hear from you on any topic, uh, rock all or otherwise. You can get us on a view from the ditch at gmail.com or you can get William on Twitter at another underscore Well, you can also get bit. us. Yeah, you can get us. Oh, you on can get Twitter. us on Twitter these days. Jesus, we're really moving up in the world. What's yeah. our Twitter handle? Our, our Twitter handle is AVFTD Radio, which is not that 
snappy, Ooh. but it's the initials of uh, a view from the ditch. But if you just search for a view from the ditch, you should be able to find us. Uh, We're also now on all your favorite uh, podcast apps, etc. Apple. Uh, Spotify. I was about to say, say Grinder there, but I don't think we're on that yet. Uh, uh, well, Apple, Spotify. Uh, speak for myself. Yeah, lots. Um, anything else you wanted to update our uh, dear listeners on, William? I think we should probably say something about the bizarre events in uh, Washington on on Wednesday of this week, um, where the Capitol building was stormed by Trump supporters who, well. Uh, stormed maybe is too strong a word for what they did. I- well, I was about to say, I, I was listening to uh, the Irish representative of d- uh, Republicans Abroad, which I don't know how esteemed a position that is or how much vetting goes through. He goes Depends who you're asking uh, whether and it's he, esteemed, I suppose. He was saying that it, it was a false flag and that they were Antifa, uh, Antifa or... Um, yeah, I think it was Antifa. Yeah, they were. yeah that does um, seem to be the line they're going with now. So the context of it was that Trump didn't seem to mind it being Antifa. He said he loves them. Yeah, he said, I, I love you, go home, or something like that. Um, but essentially, the reason they were there was that Congress was certifying was to certify the results of the presidential election. And Trump had kind of had encouraged them to go to the Capitol and said, you know, we will never concede this election, etc. So he... He said, and he said I'll, I'll be there with you. And I, like people were saying that meant he was going to go up with them you know, and do all the carnage that they did. But I, I don't know, I think he kind of meant that in a metaphorical sense, like, you know, I'll be with you in spirit. Yeah, I don't think it meant that he was personally going to be throwing bricks. Um, I just, that doesn't seem like his thing. But he, did, he didn't, he, he got, like, he's obviously been criticised by, you know, from across the American political spectrum, but also across world politics. Um, yeah, I saw a good one, which was uh, someone on... One of the news channels was saying, "God, it's like watching Bogota." And then a reporter from Bogota tweeted, uh, "No, nothing like this has happened in in many decades." Well, this is this is the funny thing that a lot of people pointed out that, you know, coups or, or insurrections against elected governments are actually historically a feature of American policy. It's just usually their foreign policy. Yeah, it doesn't end uh, traditionally. You know, not not. Uh, so much at home. Yeah, the guy, uh, the, your man from uh, Republicans Abroad mentioned uh, Operation I- Ajax or Ajax. Ajax. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which Mo- was the coup, which was was the coup in Iran. Iran, where they did have a false flag. Essentially, you know, they got uh, undercover operatives to to stir up a crowd and cause a riot against Mossadegh. Yeah, but that was the Americans doing that. Yes, and and the British, it should be said. Yeah. Um So, yes, and now of course. Uh, they're, the Democrats are uh, pushing for another impeachment uh, vote. There's also been suggestions that the, uh, that the 25th Amendment would be invoked to remove Trump from office, which would require Mike Pence uh, and some other members of the cabinet to step in. I also saw Nancy Pelosi contacting, was it I saw this. Schumer? No. Was, were, well, were you going to say about the, the nuclear codes? Yeah, yeah so she, she, she uh, rang the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff the highest ranking military officer in the United States to ask about the uh, nuclear chain of command because she was concerned that there could be he might go rogue in the remaining uh, 12 days of his presidency Jeez, and um, I'm not sure it wasn't actually clear from the report whether her concerns were entirely um, assuaged there but um, yeah I mean it's probably certainly I can understand why she was asking the question Interestingly, after all this, uh, these you know bizarre scenes, the violence and everything, they went back and ha- had the vote, and uh, so one of the votes was, one of the emotions was Ted Cruz was objecting to the results of the uh, election in Arizona, mm. and uh, it, it was easily defeated. But in the vote in the House was three hundred and three to one hundred and twenty one. Gee, man! So a, a significant rump in Congress yeah. is essentially. Taking the line of the of the rioters is that about half? Well, they're they're uh, not to defend the rioters, but you know they're they're not taking the line. The capital should be stormed, and that you know they're they're going to go along with the the vote as it is. No, but the, but they're not accepting the. Re- they're saying that the results uh, of the election yeah are not valid. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's what I that's what I mean by that, which is, um, but a lot of them still would say that it was totally wrong to have stormed the Capitol building. I'm sure they would, uh, and in indeed the same way, a lot of uh, you know, 
right-wingers are jumping ship now. Um, you know, a lot of people who obviously share Trump's politics but can't get behind, um, you know, what what has been called an insurrection. The likes of Mike Pence, Betsy DeVos, uh, are f- very much fleeing the sinking ship. Um, and I'm sure, yeah, most elected Republicans who... Uh, with any kind of career ambitions will be doing likewise. But but the point stands that like you still have a significant number there. Yeah, and they want to keep his voters on side, clearly, some of them. Um yes, and and yeah, and, and it's it's very clear that the Trump uh, support base hasn't hasn't gone away. No. Um so one of Trump's biggest failures was probably around climate change. And that brings us nicely onto our Guest of today, Sirish McHugh. How'd you like that segue, William? Huh? Very smooth. Yes, <laughs> yes. Sirish McHugh, former Green Party member, high-profile former member, resigned during the summer uh, after the decision was taken to enter coalition with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And people will recall she was, she stood in twenty nineteen in the European elections, and kind of came to prominence when she in a TV debate where she challenged Peter Casey's sort of xenophobic position. Uh, then she stood for the Greens in Mayo in the general election and in the Shannon election after that. And all three did very well for a Green candidate. That's right. Um, and yeah, and a Green candidate who was taking, uh, you know, who was not afraid to to express differences. Uh, Two pretty radical views from the from the leadership. Yeah, uh, progressive views. And uh, so we did chat to her, or rather, I did um, about. Yeah, how how she got into politics, some of the differences she had with the leadership uh, while she was in the Greens, um, and some of the issues that obviously ultimately led to her departure. Uh, we talked about all that, and and uh, her views of the current situation the Greens find themselves in, in coalition, and a little bit about uh, what the future holds. So, yeah. Well, I've had the privilege of listening to this already, and it's a doozy. So let's let our listeners do some listening. So, uh, thanks, uh, Sirsha, for joining us. I wonder if you could start by taking us back to maybe your own political background and how that led you to joining the Green Party. Okay, well, I suppose um, when people think political, I wasn't involved with parties for a long time. I was in one party. Um, I had joined Sinn Féin. Um, with the idea that I'm like, okay, this is the main opposition. Um, they have no environmental policy. Um, I could volunteer to help or to write it. And I went back a couple of times with different reps from Sinn Féin and I found them to be completely um, uninterested. And so I did kind of give up on that. Like, And before and for the previous few years, I had been trying different different things like um you know i had uh, helped organize and pull together um different people working around food sovereignty and it was usually around agriculture that i ended up working i was you know i went into a few schools slideshow and then like chickened out because teenagers are so scary um and <laughs> like i had kept trying these different things and getting to dead ends and when i look back now i suppose i probably should have reached out to other people already doing it but I wasn't on social media um and so I did I keep giving up really quickly and so I started going to different politicians and from all parties um talking about the need for a like a something similar to Slauncher Care but for the environment um and a few people got back to me most people didn't 
Um, but that's how I met Eamon Ryan. And in fairness to him, I'm sure he wished he vet, had vetted me more. But we met once and then he contacted me again. He was like, I have a proposal for you. Would you run for us, basically? Um, and I was still in Sinn Féin at the time. And I was like, uh, okay, I suppose. And I'd never really thought about it. I'd never really thought about running for it. But I figured, you know, at least it would structure um, a campaign for me because I was finding it really hard to to just imagine how to organize, especially, you know, living in Ackle and being kind of um, a lone voice down here. Um, so I figured I would just use the the structure of an election to kind of, um, I suppose, to guide me in campaigning and talking to people and using it to knock on doors to talk to people about these things that I think are really, really important. Um, and then after that, I figured, well, I've done the really hard, but I did the European election, so I may as well just do the Mayo election, um, which, like, I think when I look at Mayo, like Mayo loves Finnegale. I think we were the only only uh, county in the country to still return like a Finnegaler on top, um, and it was a lot more difficult, but I suppose a lot more people were a lot more engaged on the doors which was a good and bad thing unfortunately because what I what I did notice in the in the county elections it wasn't there in the European elections was people saying well what are you going to do for me I'd like nothing I'm not, I'm not going to do anything for you what I'm going to do is um and I don't think that went down very well at all yeah. but that's how I ended up kind of in I kind of fell into it I never I never thought I wanted to be a politician I never particularly felt like one I always felt like a big imposter um Mm -hmm. and the relief after I was like okay I I don't think I'll do that again like the relief the amount of times if I'm ever walking around in the state or anything I'm always like oh my god thank god I don't have to knock on doors and canvas yeah so I wonder Mayo of course is not um seen as somewhere where a green candidate would be expected to prosper necessarily. Um, so I wonder if you could <laughs> say a little more about what that was like, how the kinds of arguments you were making were and have been received in Mayo. I suppose it was quite mixed. Like, the, I'd tell you the biggest um, response on the doors was, um, I've promised my vote to Michael Ring. And you're like, oh, okay why and they're like because he like his secretary got me something 25 years ago and you're like okay right well can I have a a, a number two please and they're like you know uh so that was the majority was like oh I think you're great I completely agree with you but I promise I vote or I I always vote for x yeah whoever um and that was a bit frustrating because yes but you're talking about legislators here we're not talking about councillors um and then, of course, you know, you can't blame people for falling into that trap because, like, it's a self-perpetuating trap. Like, places are underfunded or public services are underfunded, so you can't get a medical card. And then all of a sudden, a secretary of a TD gets you one, something you're entitled to, something you should be able to get from some office somewhere. Um, and you do. Like, it does make your life easier. Um, other than that, there was a lot of, like... Um, oh, but the Greens have ruined rural Ireland or the Greens have done this or the Greens have done that. And I'm like, have they though? Because they've had like two seats or there were six seats in government once for like three years. Are, are you sure it's the Greens that have done this? Because like sometimes talking to people, you'd say the Greens had ruled with some sort of like iron fist secretly ruling over the last hundred years in the country. Um, and there was a lot of conflation of any sort of... Um, any sort of regulation that had to do with land with something the Greens had done. So I remember one person talking to me about uh, the grazing um, and how the Greens had ruined the grazing. And I was like, but that came from Europe and it was decided by, I think McSharry was the agricultural commissioner at the time. And they were like, no, it was the Greens. And I was like, I don't think that's 
true um but it doesn't matter i suppose because communication really is is almost more important is more important i would argue than what politicians actually do um so there's a lot of uh, fear so people were putting would blame things like rural depopulation and um the difficulties in agriculture on the greens despite the fact that you know these had been 100 years well these have been 80 years in the making a lot of these problems um like before the greens even existed in ireland and that that was pushed like i was talking to one journalist who um have been just up canvassing with Lisa Chambers and her canvassers. And he goes to me, so a Fianna Fáil canvasser I was just on the doors with was saying that the Greens would ruin rural Ireland. And I was like, they can't say that. That's, that's not true or very nice of them. Um, but other than that, I like, I imagine it's fairly standard what you get on the doors. Like some people are just not interested in being canvassed. Some people will would keep you there all day. Um, but yeah, the the Greens will ruin rural Ireland, and I've already promised my vote were kind of the two biggest things I get on the doors. Yeah, it seems that narrative um, seems to be fairly pervasive. This idea of that there's a, sort of an inherent conflict between environmentalism and rural Ireland. It's been played up by some of the rural independents in the Dáil recently. Like I think I don't know which of them it was. So. I think I know, but I won't say in case I get it wrong, said that the Greens were the tail wagging the dog in government. Uh, and um, it's it seems like a fairly significant obstacle to any kind of ecological movement in Ireland to challenge this narrative. Well, I would have said that, but now seeing what the Greens are happy to do, I'm kind of like, oh, or is it much of an, is it much of an obstacle at all? Um it's definitely used by rural TDs um, to set themselves up as this kind of, you know, scrappy in your corner, fighting against these these ecological, you know, tyrants. Um, and then they know it's totally false. Um, and I do think, I do think a lot of people, especially in the agricultural community, like they're often made really afraid of the greens when in reality like you know it's the ifa it's it's dawn it's denone um they're the ones making all the money and making all the decisions and i think like i have noticed at farmers meetings myself i think there's an awareness growing that actually this whole environmentalist versus agriculture slash rural ireland is totally false um and it's nonsense um because there's only so many years you can blame the Greens until you're like, well, wait a second. Like, this is not, it's not the Greens making hundreds of thousands of euro, you know? Um, but, uh, and like, you, you can see it slowly change. Like, even the IFA have slowly changed from, and some rural TDs I was just listening to the last day, have slowly changed from the Greens want to destroy everything to, well, we have to do something about the environment, but not this. Because, like, unfortunately with the nature of climate breakdown it's not going away um and by by resisting change um i think this is true especially for a lot of the smaller farmers by resisting change all it means is that they have no say in what the change looks like um because like if you look at if you look at chagas if you look at a lot of the big big farms we have in ireland like they know they have to change and they know that they have to get emissions down and they have to get efficiency up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, while all the while pumping up this, oh, yeah, we won't change anything at all because they know they'll be the only ones left. Um, and I do think. I do think that is kind of, yeah, it's percolating down. Everyone's starting to realize that. Now, I know I'm conflating agriculture and rural, which is something that always annoys me um, because most people in rural Ireland are not farmers at all. Yeah. Um, but it is kind of used as a proxy, you know. Yes, the, I suppose the, the two get lumped in together when it's convenient for the person making the argument. But I suppose that this kind of uh, brings us on to, you know, in terms of what, what the change looks like, this 
so brings us on to the question of, of why you ultimately broke with the Green Party, as, as indeed a lot of people seem to have done lately, um, the likes of Sinead Mercier and, and Lorna Bogue, uh, to name two. Um, would it be fair to say that before the whole issue, question of the programme for government came up with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, be fair to say that you were f- kind of solidly opposed to the idea of coalition with the big conservative parties to begin with. Yeah. Um, you know, and much and all, as I love to say, I was right. Um, it is like, ugh, it doesn't feel that good even. Yeah. Like, all you have to do is look around and see what happens when a smaller party goes into government with a bigger party. And I was very initially opposed to it <clears throat> before even the general election, like when they had two TDs, um, because I, and, and the reason I had brought it up at that convention was because I, I felt like it needed to be a conversation that needed to be started earlier, especially when you would hear stories about how they were kind of shoehorned into the last coalition as well. Like the members didn't get to see the programme for government until that day. Um, and apparently the leadership hadn't wanted to show them the programme for government at all. So I did well, feel like, yeah, I did feel like we needed to start talking about it originally. And I was really surprised at actually the um, intensity of the backlash, even then, even when we had only two seats. Um, like it, it didn't really, it, it made quite clear that there were certain sections of the party that that was their aim, actually. Um, and then you know, when the program for government came up and it was a piece of trash, I, like, at first I thought I was kind of um, just being really difficult. And I was like, maybe, no, maybe this is good. And maybe I'm just, you know, a crank. Um, But reading it a few times, like, there was nothing in it that was, like, the environmental measures in it were either all coming from Europe in the pipeline already, um, because you actually can get stuff done in opposition, or um, committed to by or Fine Gael policy. And then on top of that, we had parliamentary party uh, members in the Greens like just lying about what was in the programme for government. Like they lied about the um, referendum on a right to housing. You know, they lied about the LNG. And it was, I, I was shocked at how ugly that whole discussion around the programme for government became. Um, but Needless to say, like, of course, what has happened is what has happened. Like, even you'll see some, um, I see some people on Twitter, people who are really pro-program for government being like, oh, why is this happening? And I'm like, because it was in the program. For, like, what did you think we were saying? Like, did you think we were just being obtuse for no reason? Um, but once again, it's quite like... It doesn't feel good to be to have been so right. Like even there today or yesterday, I was like <laughs> saying to a, a small little group that I'm in, I was like, well, thank God the Greens went into government to deal with the pandemic, right? Whew. I would feel real silly if they hadn't. And it's like, like it's, it just doesn't feel good at all to have been so right. I'd love to have been wrong, actually. Well, uh, what, yeah, one of the interesting things about that whole debate was that it did play out in public uh, on Twitter in particular. You saw these arguments uh, sometimes civil, sometimes very much not between Green members and activists on, on Twitter about the merits of coalition and yeah, it, there did seem to be a kind of a uh, lack of accounting for how it was going to be different to the last time they went into the coalition and got and got wiped out. But the other argument that people were making, I seem to recall, was along the lines of the urgency of the climate crisis means we have to go in now. What what do you make of that? Yeah, well, like it was just a lie, wasn't it? Um, like, and and this one of the things that really <clears throat> irritated me and still annoys me about the Greens and government, if they could turn around and say. Yes, we voted against um, extending the rental ban for everyone or the eviction ban for everyone because I will get X, Y, Z in return and I think it's worth it. Or we're going to continue to fund the Greyhounds because, you know, I we got a commitment to a ban on LNG. Like, 
I would understand that if you just say what you traded off because I get you know like people would say oh so it's about compromise I'm like okay well what's the compromise and they're like we'll be at the table I'm like yeah okay um and you know it it was never I think the whole conversation about it was never had in good faith from the people who a lot of people who wanted to go into coalition like there is a few uh there was one or two councillors who were very honest who were like I am really worried about xyz but I one of them was like I love bike lanes I do I love them um and I'm like okay I know why you went in um but a lot of there was a lot of this like you know feet under the table we'll be in the room will be, you know, voices, bringing the voices, all this kind of rot that is meaningless. Um, and, like, it was remarkable how passionately some people in the leadership wanted to go into government, despite the fact that, like that, there was no big commitment to um, emissions reductions. Like, do you, I don't know, do you remember, this very niche people who were fascinated with this program for government thing, there were 17 questions sent in by the parliamentary party. Um, <clears throat> and on the answers to these questions from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, they were going to decide whether to go into coalition. Ah. So they sent them in and they got them back. And I was like, I, when I saw the response, I was like, oh, so we're definitely not going in because Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael were like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And like poor, poor Eamon and them, like the... One of, like several of the questions were like, and will you implement this Fianna Fáil policy? <laughs> like it was really like, please just give us something. Um, and the answers came back to that. Uh, and specifically, one of them was talking about this seven percent mm. emissions per annum, which turned out to yeah. be not per annum, going to be backloaded, which is obviously not going to happen. Um, and. I was surprised that even though they came back and said, no, we're not going to do that, basically. Uh, it's not going to be adequate. It's not going to be sufficient. It's not going to be accountable. Um, and also, we're not going to do it in this term of government. Even still, that argument that oh, we have to go in because of the climate crisis had weight or something. Like, I don't know, because I, I thought my own arguments against it were really clear. Um, but people still just trusted the leadership and we're like okay if the leadership if Eamon wants to go in then something about the environment I don't know what the end rationale was um and like obviously as you can see we've you know hugely inexperienced TDs um he gave a senator a ministry and you're like oh my god what like is it just that you know that they just wanted to go in for five years and know that they were just going to be there for five years. Like, I, I don't know. It still baffles me to try and think of what, why the majority now, a huge majority of the membership voted for it. Um, and what they, what they thought would happen. Like, Yes, it, it was a huge majority. It ended up being, a, of course, a larger proportion than either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael members who voted for the coalition. Yeah. Um, so it is, and I remember, uh, though, yeah, the emissions arguments around the program for government at the time. I remember Conor McCabe s saying at the time, even if you said as a Green, we're willing to sacrifice all our other policies just in order to get the emissions reductions targets in there. They're not in the lifetime of this government. So therefore, it's not a real commitment, you know. Um, the, the other thing that came up um that you mentioned at the time that you resigned was like the culture in the party let's say like you mentioned that it had been toxic that was the the, the word since and in particular since the local elections in 2019 where, where the greens did extremely well uh i wonder if you could speak a little bit about that yeah of course it was so i suppose like without naming names almost immediately after the European elections um, it's like and I don't I don't know what was it the sniff of success or I don't know what it was um, but immediately like and it was after the convention as well like I started getting uh, 
people who are really well respected environmentalists um, <clears throat> telling me to leave the party. I had one woman, um, and I think she she works as a policy advisor for different TDs, but like she's also a lecturer, like like rambling on on Facebook threads about um, uh, anti-Semitic entryism and like we mustn't forget what happened Labour in the UK and another her and another one were talking about like PVP plants. They were referring to myself and Lorna Bogue and a few others who had spoken about capitalism mm. um, at the convention, like, but really deranged, like reds under the bed kind of stuff. Like, okay. like the, like pure McCarthyism. It was, it was bonkers to see. Um, like <clears throat> I had one woman like that who, who lectures say that um, talking about, ca- talking about capitalism causes class war. I was like, I don't know if, that's the cause of class war. Yeah, um, it's controversial, all right. Yeah, and like it just it kind of, you know, then it lulled off, and then after the general elections, like it really um, went up a notch. And if if there was any sort of dissent, if there was any sort of um, disagreement from not the party line because party policy is created by members but from what Eamon said you got in trouble like <clears throat> after I remember going on television and talking about the carbon tax that I didn't agree with which wasn't Green Party policy it was Fine Gael policy it had not gotten through the Green Party membership like it was bonkers that it was being pushed so hard by Eamon um, mm. and like it wasn't Green Party policy right. and I didn't agree with it anyway and I said that and the next day, like I had the press officer who's now a government press officer, um, Eamon Secretary, um, who I think is now chief of staff, and Eamon all separately ringing me, like freaking out over this. And you have ruined so many people's chances and so many people are so angry with you. And I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And like I kept I was so upset by that for, I'd say, a good two weeks. Um and I kept being like, who's who's so angry with me? I'll reach out to them and tell them I'm sorry or whatever. And they wouldn't tell me because it turns out, you know, surprised your reader. Nobody was. Um, and because I re- ended up reaching out to most people anyway. And I was like, wow. So that was just like really shitty bullying. And like anyone, anytime anyone spoke out about anything, um, especially younger people, um, there was like quite a vicious backlash like I remember one she's a counsellor now and a PA to her husband I think or an essay uh, she was talking to another young member and she was like oh not this um, faux feminist accusatory bullshit like just really shitty like if you ever brought up any valid concerns um, like someone tried to suspend Lorna Bogue <laughs> like for saying it yeah. wasn't good enough like but it was just you couldn't say anything without um, just like a a really shitty pylon um and and people outside the party you know joined in i remember um my i think it was my i think it was colin or or possibly eden talking to a really well-known um environmentalist about the program for government uh who was like really pushing it and he was like it's just not good enough and he was like uh well at least i'm trying asshole what are you doing and it was like but that whole attitude pervaded like you couldn't have any sort of reasonable conversation with people um like the screaming at people who, that went on within you know parliamentary party meetings the the bullying of staff who disagreed um like it's i'm so glad to be gone from that place because like it, there's a whole there's a huge swathe of like really traumatized people who were like oh god working for the greens or working with the greens or anything because they're just like because it's it's just full of bullies you know um and it's it's just full of people who are quite happy to use the youth or the people who have media profile as like these mascots but as soon as they have any um anything to say it's like it, it's quite a vicious bash, backlash I saw one of my friends saying they're like people who shop in um, health food shops but are mean to staff 
that's who the greens are unfortunately and like like that look i'm sure it happens in every single party yeah um like at least every other party doesn't pretend they're different you know the greens are like we're the nice ones and it's like are you though are you really like and stuff that you hear about from within the parliamentary party oh my god like i i don't know how it's similar to you know like you'll see football managers you know cursing and swearing at grown adults hmm. i'm like that just walk off the pitch like i would not have that um yeah. like it, it's quite similar when you hear about some of the things that are said and have gone on oh my god you don't just leave the room like especially people i'm fond of i'm like you don't need to take that from these people yeah well that i mean it's very regressive that the idea that you can't have a a different position within a party and the idea that you have democratic debate is you know supposed to be the basis of you know uh, party democracy um that's pretty depressing um to hear that I think one of the issues when the why it's particularly galling with the Greens is that the Green Party is set up in a way that's supposed to um, stop any of that happening. So it's supposed to be like this quite democratic party, and that's what all the party structures um, would lead to if they're followed. And then you'll get um, Eamon just ignoring it or overriding it, and then you know you have the exec saying, "Oh, and." everyone just continues on it's like you're not supposed to do that um and it's just this constant like at least i think in other parties there's a structure whereby the party leader does have you know x amount of power um Mm. in the greens though it's they're not supposed to so you do have this you do have an ability to fight against it and that's i think where the bullying comes in because you, we technically, you know, within the Greens, there technically is the right to this democratic debate and democratic kind of uh, control of the party. But when I think when the people at the top don't actually want that, um, then that's where it becomes confrontational. In what follows, I asked Saoirse about CETA which, for those who don't know, is a free trade agreement between the European Union and Canada, which was due to be ratified by the Doyle in December, and the vote was delayed when Patrick Costello and Nasa Harrigan signalled their intention to vote against it. CETA, if ratified, would allow corporations to sue the state through an investor court system over regulations that negatively impact their profits, which obviously could have significant implications for climate action and the Greens previously had campaigned against CETA mm. and I suppose that that's definitely come up in, in um, recently and in, in relation to uh, to CETA there was uh, descriptions of the media of, of a, an almighty row in the parliamentary party uh, where this was obviously something the Green Party had previously campaigned against and now members and TDs were being told that this is something that they had to agree to that the that the program for government committed them to it even though it wasn't in there in the text and uh, and that if they didn't vote for it it would bring down the government but, and that's just like a lie because well, I think it was Matt Noonan maybe or Brian Ledden I just saw in the Green TD recently saying oh, but that's not technically in the programme for government, so we can't be expected to get that. And I'm like, hmm, I thought things that weren't in the programme for government were in the programme for government. Like, surely the programme for government doesn't include everything that's not explicitly mentioned, because in that case, like, you know, we could have great things from this programme for government if that's the case, if it's not explicitly ruled out in it. Um, It doesn't surprise me. <clears throat> what I've been surprised at is that some members are surprised because they're like, but party policy. And I'm like, when has party policy ever mattered here? Like, it doesn't matter to our leadership. It, it literally doesn't matter. So why would this matter? Um, and I, you see, it all depends on the voting. Like, CETA was postponed, unfortunately, 
it was on such a weak case that like it was a huge campaign against it. I don't think Fianna Fáilers or Fianna Gaelers would care, but only that the Greens rostered to vote, two of them, um, you know, could hear that public pressure and also in themselves believe that it was wrong. Yeah. So that's like it's it's a pretty um, it's a pretty uh, flimsy defence against CETA being ratified, um, the voting roster, and I can't imagine they'd be all voting together anytime soon. So. I imagine the Greens could do something as cynical as just wait until um, Nasser or Kazi aren't rostered to vote. Um, now, I can't imagine, like, I imagine there must be a few Fianna Fáil TVs who don't agree to it as well. Because, um, well, because it, you know, it has massive reper- repercussions for everybody. Um and I suppose there'll be a campaign now over the next two weeks to try and reach out to those, especially the rural TVs um, from across the three governing parties. Um, but yeah, like I'm completely unsurprised that Eamon now supporting CETA. Like, and it's kind of, you know, I know it's a big joke. Like you're like, well, I didn't have that on my bingo card, but at this stage I'm like, you have actually surpassed my expectations, Eamon. Like, a well done, I suppose. Like, managing. And, you know, if it does pass, I'm like, he will have to be given um, credit as one of the best politicians out there because he'll have managed to convince the Green Party to be, you know, pro-military, pro-CETA, you know, pro-industrialised agriculture. He has completely managed to he'll have completely managed to neutralise the Green Party, so they're just another wing of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. Um, and that in itself would be pretty impressive. Well, yeah, I mean, it 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 is um, amazing in politics sometimes what people can rationalise. But um, I wonder, like, if you could characterise what, you know, what is it uh, in CETA that is so threatening to uh, environmentalism. I mean, the obvious controversial aspect of it is the investor court um, system where private companies would be able to able to sue the state over regulations, including environmental regulations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's like, you know, that could, when you look at the things Canada has been sued for um, through NAFTA, it has been. I was looking. I was reading it, that sued at one stage for banning uh, the importation of gas that had a suspected neurochemical neurotoxin in it, and they right. had to overturn the ban. Of the company, um, they have been sued for an environmental impact assessment found that a certain area was too ecologically sensitive for a massive mine and marina, and they had to pay out a huge amount of money for that. Um, like they, well, there was something else they were sued for something over food. I, I can't remember what it was, but like you know, preposterous stuff that companies can be sued over. And now, um, <clears throat> you hear people who are arguing for it, claiming that well, we have to ratify it, or you know, because trade's so important. But I have heard other people whose opinions I trust um, say that they can't find any legal basis for the need to ratify it like it could stay partially ratified forever um and another you know another big issue with CETA coming through is that it has a zombie clause so that if we pulled out of it um and i don't know i don't even know what mechanism would go through like once it's ratified does the whole eu have to pull out of it i don't know but the investor court system stays in place for 20 years after we pull out um right similarly countries are supposed to go in with a list of services basically that they want to protect from privatization and like the Irish government are like no we have no list no it's fine you know like other yeah. countries have their healthcare down their school systems their libraries their roads whatever a lo- load of different things that they don't want to leave open to privatization and the Irish government have nothing on it like imagine if they started privatizing schools you know like we'd be where this where the Yanks are in I don't know in a couple of years. Um and that's really, really frightening. 
Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think we would tend to agree with you here. Uh, I suppose if I could finish by uh, touching on something that came up. At the time um, you resigned in the statement uh, you made at the time, uh, you mentioned that, oh yeah, that you didn't believe electoral politics uh, was the pathway to a just and free society. And I, th I think there were some kind of bad faith criticisms of that at the time. Um, but it, you know, it seems to me it was fairly clear that what you were talking about was was social movements. Um, and I think you've just described how electoral politics can maybe suck the energy out of a movement. Um, yeah. So I wonder, um, in your view, how do how do we go about building the kinds of movements that we that we do need? Um, the alternatives well i'm i suppose i'll preface it with i'm no expert on it at all and i find it actually really hard to think about and imagine um and because even even my own thoughts or even like when i start to think about it myself i can't help but orient movements around politicians you know pressuring politicians um uh, you know and, and that that is valuable but i like my, my imagination is so captured by this idea that, you know, we elect these people to represent us and then they, you know, it's the same old structure and yeah, like it's, I'm so, yeah, I'm so trapped by that um, imagination. And then, you know, we, we scoff and we look at places like, you know, the Brits and they have all these like ridiculous rituals and stuff. I'm like, we're, getting there people like the fact that when you talk about a change of even governance you know if you say well how could we change governance like people really kick back against it and I'm like lads we are just a couple of hundred years away from having these preposterous kind of you know they have all like the black adder or the, I the, black, rod. the, black, the black rod the black rod yeah, yeah. rot hmm. um like we're close to that or you know we're close to these like real fundamentalist constitutionalists in the u.s um you know obsessed with these hundred year old systems and documents that were never supposed like i'm sure if the people that wrote the u.s constitution for instance were like oh my god you're still using this <laughs> you're still using this whatever three two hundreds of years later um they'd be shocked and appalled because it's stupid. Um, but saying that, I say, okay, well, well, what could we do around it? And I do feel that, I do feel there's like a massive political education lacking in Ireland. Um, like even within the bigger unions, like obviously there's certain sections of unions that are really involved in political education, but a lot of the membership um, maybe is not so involved in it and I do think it will take robust networks of people who are on the same page generally rather than just around single topics like obviously things like repeal are a great are a great um focal point to organize around um but without using those to further political education like what happened with the water charges, they just kind of melt away again. Um, and it's a shame because it's so much energy gone into this organizing. Now, like, I don't know how to go about creating a, a population that is in a constant state of um, agitation for better. And like, I, I, that's, I think that's quite an exciting thought. It doesn't mean you have to be on the streets every single day. But like I, I do feel that our political system as it is, they're so comfortable, like the stuff they get away with. Um, you know, even, even like looking at how COVID was managed, for instance, um, and how, like I was watching Simon Harris do this kind of, he does all these cutesy Instagram videos. Right. And I'm like, this same man who like what, nine months, no more, a year ago was threatening financial sanctions on striking nurses. 
and now he's like just talk to people and you're you know we all have to do our bit and like the violence that just stirs up inside me I can't imagine what the nurses feel but I suppose I'm rambling a bit in the end I can't fully imagine what it is but it has to be more than us <clears throat> trying to pressure politicians um and like obviously in the end I think it'd be great if you know we didn't have to have a government if we could rely on each other as citizens to kind of uphold our own society like if we didn't have to have you know if we didn't have like it'd be amazing if we didn't have to have you know guards and judges and if we could just have these self-regulating societies which I believe we could have as how to get there I don't know how to build those movements I think will take it could be a long slog of years of political education, even when nothing's going on. Um, like what I had been talking to a few people about after the general election was getting together and just canvassing every week in Mayo anyway. Because when you're canvassing and, you know, say I'm like, oh, I want to talk about sustainable agriculture or something, you're still trying to convince them to vote for you. And you're still like not going to spend an hour and a half on the door. But I was thinking, you know, what if we just started canvassing and be like, I want to talk about X, Y, Z. Um, now, we might be run. I don't know. And I don't know if that's the best way to do it. Um, like, I think it will start in everybody's home, you know, with their family and then with their friends and then maybe move outward from that. And like, there's definitely, you know, so much writing on this. I've gotten a few books for Christmas that I plan to read now you know, who people who have actually already thought this through. Um, and and just one last point, like when I said that, uh, I think you're right in that a lot of the takes were intentionally misunderstanding it mm. um, and intentionally trying to make me look silly. Yeah. Um, and now, obviously, I'm super biased in that, but I was like, no, you look silly. You look silly that you can't, say does this work because does it like look we you know we've been tipping along with it for a hundred years and people are dying on trolleys and we have so much money in this country and yet like you know things are a bit rubbish um so does it work and does it work because we get the same people doing the same stuff again and again and again and what i thought was very telling was like it was almost like a fearful reaction the the um the kind of response when especially journalists i'm like is this not your job like and if you can't defend your system without just kind of mocking me like if you can't say well seriously it works because of xyz yeah. and it's upside out this that and the next instead of just like haha look at this silly girl who wasn't elected mm. okay well maybe your, your argument's a bit if your only argument against what I said is that I wasn't elected, then that's a pretty, you know, poor rationale for a governing system, isn't it? Yeah. You see, I don't know. I wish I had more kind of like, this is what we need to do. But I don't. I'm like, oh, God, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. Well, no, I mean, I obviously, in a sense, it's an impossible question, but it's what we all need to be thinking about. And, and I think you've definitely touched on something important there in that you know, people tend to think of democracy as something that just happens every five years. You tick a box and you pick a new set of managers and they look after it without any further public participation in the process. Seems obvious to me anyway that that's not going to work for us. Um, yeah. And yeah, uh, there's a lot of work to be done to figure out uh, what what the alternative is. Yeah. There is a lot of work to be done, yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, thanks for uh, talking to us about all that. Um, no bother. And uh, yeah, best of luck. That's it from us this week at A View From The Ditch. If you want to get in touch, it's a viewfromtheditch at gmail.com. Thanks to Saoirse McHugh for talking to us and to Irda and Natalie for our theme music. Saoirse also has her own podcast, which is called The ABC's of green politics if you want to check that out and uh, thanks for listening all oh, the empire it is finished now foreign lands to seize 
So the greedy eye of England is turning towards the sea. Two hundred miles from Donegal. There's a place that's called Rockall, and the groping hands of Whitehall are grabbing at its fall. Oh, Rockall, Rockall, you'll never fall. For Britain's greedy hands, I'll meet the same resistance like it did in any land. May the seagulls rise and pluck your eyes, and the water crush your shell, and the natural gas will burn your ass and blow you all to hell. This rock is part of Ireland, but it's written in folklore. When Finn McCool took a sod of